welcome to Monday Morning Coffee with Inside the Firm. Each week, our hosts will be interviewing local, regional, and national business leaders to give you an inside peek into how they lead their business to success in the ever-competitive business climate. Welcome to Monday Morning Coffee Inside the Firm. Today, I have a very special guest. Pete Senna is a creative entrepreneur and visionary business builder, partnering with founders and leaders to drive 10x growth through branding, marketing, innovation, and digital experience design. As the founder of Digital Surgeons, he spent he has spent nearly 20 years designing strategies that unleash growth for brands from startups to Fortune 500 companies. Pete's expertise lies in, lies in branding, marketing, innovation, strategy, and digital transformation. He thrives in optimizing potential by focusing on human-centered problem solving and the interplay of connection, curiosity, and creativity. Pete, welcome to the show. Good to be here. Good to be here. Yeah. So before we get into what you do, uh, I, I always ask everybody this question as a fellow entrepreneur. Tell us how you got here. You know, Are you from a family of entrepreneurs? Are you the first? What drives that entrepreneurial spirit? So I'm going to say pop culture is what drives that entrepreneurial spirit. Um, all jokes aside. So Lance, great question. Um, I grew up in a family of blue collar people. Um, my father is the son of immigrants from Italy. My mom is, um, her parents, you know, well, so I'll roll back. So, um, I'm just going through my head. Right. So, so my mom's kind of from a bunch of different places. Um, but she's not an immigrant or, uh, or kids of an immigrant. And then, but my dad, however, is, you know, he was sort of first generation, his, his family is from Italy. Um, and I say that because everyone's blue collar, right? So I was the first kid in my family to go to college. I was the first person in my extended family to start a business. So to answer your original question, this was not in the cards. It was not mm. in the plan. Um, I would say just, I always loved technology. I always loved just movies and games and just all that kind of pop culturally stuff. And I think that's what sent me down this journey, this rabbit hole where one day I started hitting keys on a keyboard and things started showing up on the screen. And I was like, wow, this is pretty awesome. So the idea that I could, you know, smash some letters and numbers on a keyboard. And all of a sudden I had a game or I had an image, I had an app, I had a whatever that was really prolific for me. And that I would say is the beginning of just how I became a digital surgeon, um, which then went on for me to start my first company, which I started in college called digital surgeons. Um, we've now since evolved into a brand transformation company, but in the beginning it was just making cool shit for the internet. And, um, ultimately that's, that's the sort of short version of how it all happened. Yeah. So yeah, you started it, you started the company in your college dorm room, correct? Yeah. So yeah, yeah that at a high level, I was working for a corporation at the time. Um, while I was sort of when I started school, I wasn't full-time on campus until like later years. So in the beginning, I was working with a large sports marketing company, um, big corporation, global company, um, may or be not, may or may not be owned by Disney now. And um from there, I realized that I wasn't getting the fulfillment and the joy and which are two things that I think are really important to me, fulfillment and joy. Mm -hmm. I wasn't getting that because they were trying to put me in a box and the box was sort of this or that. And I'm an and person. So it was at that point that I made the shift and went from being a full-time employee to a contractor or vendor. And then that's ultimately where the digital surgeon's journey began. Um, and while everybody in college was out there, you know, partying, chasing girls and getting drunk, I was in my dorm room, you know, crushing Starbucks, Red Bulls and, you know, writing code and making cool shit for the internet, which is kind of what I still do today. Just, I think at a, a bigger, broader level. 
Yeah, definitely. I, I love that. Uh, so what, what do you think, if you could point to just a few of these, what, what do you think the key turning points were for you in regards to, and then I, I got to imagine they're coupled with challenges when you were starting out the business, you know, what, what are some that you could tell us about just as a, as a fellow person who's like in, was in startup mode at one point? Yeah. I mean, to be candid, I would say I'm still in startup mode. You mm -hmm. know, a lot of my clients that I work with to the, today, you know, what I always say is all my clients have one thing in common. They want to drive forward progress and growth right? So some of my clients are fortune fifties. They've been around for a hundred plus years. Some of my clients are just getting started and they're chasing venture capital or trying to raise money. We do a lot of angel investing as well. So I see, I see a lot of different stages in the journey, but in terms of my journey and my story that I can sort of own because it was my own is in the beginning, you know, figuring out how do you get work, right? What, whatever that work is, you know, I was a freelancer. I was an independent contractor that was starting a company I didn't raise capital. I was bootstrapping everything. Um, you know, so ultimately that comes down to how do you hire employees? How do you build things? How do you teach yourself all these different things? So um, the world today, I think, is a lot different than the world was 20 years ago in that I think just the accessibility to knowledge, you know, nowadays you can hop on YouTube and you can search for just about anything and, and get the answers, whether it's YouTube or TikTok or whatever. Back in the day, like I had to go hang out the, at like a bookstore for the day to like, you know, try to copy, copy things down. The joke I used to make, you know, Lance was in the early days, I was broke, you know, I was like eating ramen, living in my parents' basement kind of thing. And I would go to a bookstore, uh, like in the early days, like even before I could drive, like my dad would drop me off at a bookstore. I would be reading books on like C++ or Java or whatever it was. And then writing down in my notebook, some of the code, because the books were like 60 bucks and I didn't have that money. Mm. And, you know, that, that was disposable income. Wasn't something that we could just kind of throw money at back in the day. So, you know, as crazy as that might sound, you could, nowadays you can teach yourself how to code on these things. You know, you can, any yep. question you have, if you've got a smartphone, which most people that are listening to this episode now or in the future, definitely have a smartphone, definitely have high-speed internet. And that's powerful, but that, that wasn't around back then. So I'd say the biggest challenge for me was like, where the hell do I start? How do mm -hmm. I get clients? How do I build this thing? How do I teach myself this new stuff? You know, you learn like this much stuff in college that ultimately equips you to become an entrepreneur. Yeah, I know. I just, I, one of my uh, stepson is going to the business school at CU Boulder and I, for everybody knows who listens to the show. Like I, I teach there. I'm not trying to poo-poo the university, but at the same time, as as a serial entrepreneur myself, who's been fairly successful, like I, I I've told him, your mother and I are, are both entrepreneurs. She, she's an investor. She does real estate. She's a mortgage broker. All kinds of stuff like that. And I'm like, your lesson is really probably from us. Like, all you got to do is intern with us, and he, he won't do it or anything like that. So I'm with I'm with you there. You mentioned clients too. So I'm really yep. glad you unpacked. Okay, here's here's how Pete went and found some tangible things that he could invest in himself to then learn C++ and all the other technical things. Talk about the clients though. How did you get that first client? So my first client, I think was actually like, I think my dad introduced me to somebody that was like a small business. I think my first client was not going back. It was like, it was 
because I've had a couple of things before I started digital surgeons, I was like doing like, you know, odds and ends, like fixing people's computers and like doing like dumb shit like that. Um, I think my first client was just like family friends that I was helping out for free. And then one day convinced to pay me a little bit. And then before you know it, they're like, Hey, do you know how to make websites? And I was like, yes, that's what I do. And they're like, okay, can you like make a website for our company? So it was like mostly like local yokel stuff to start. Um, and then from there, I think I would always try to take it to 11, right? Like a little spinal tap reference, right? It's like, I don't want to, I don't want to go to 10. I want to go to 11 on everything I do. So I would take these like small little like mom and pop businesses and give them these incredible digital experiences. And then, you know, obviously did SEO and a bunch of other stuff that would help them get the traffic they need, get the leads that they need and make the thing look beautiful. You know, my, mm -hmm. my philosophy is it's all about the balance of form and function, right? And the intersection of form and functions growth. So for me, from the youngest time, anything I did it couldn't just look pretty. It couldn't just be functional. Like it had to actually help people's businesses grow. Um, so it wasn't just about making cool shit for the internet. It's cool shit that works. So with that, I would say like, I was doing these like really small projects, getting a lot of visibility. And then I started getting emails from like agencies and, you know, Madison Avenue companies that were like, wow. Hey, so we need someone to like program in this language or design this thing for this website. And at the time, just to give a, a context for the audience, Lance, like, um, it was 2004, right? 2004, 2005. There, nowadays, it's like you could go on Fiverr and find someone to build you a landing page, right? But in 2004, 2005, if you had these capabilities and you were any good at it, and I'd like to think I was pretty good at it, mm -hmm. um, you could get some pretty killer clients, right? So like here I am, I'm like 19 years old and you know, I'm working on like one of the biggest brands in the world um, building like a, a car configurator, you know what I mean? Um, and it's like, I look forward now and I'm like, wow, like it's much harder today to stand out because everybody has access to all these kind of cool things. And nowadays with the advent of AI, like you could go into chat GPT and like just yeah. mash out a bunch of stuff that, that is actually pretty convincible. So yeah, I, I don't know if that's helpful or not, but. Oh, a hundred percent. Yeah, absolutely. That was perfect. But I mean, you, you generated some more questions for me. So like, how did you figure yeah. out how, uh, some of these questions, Pete, are our podcast, this episode, these the Monday morning episodes in particular, are, are for people that are either thinking about starting a business, have started a business, or in the in the midst of it, like very early on. So I, I just think that some of the things, some of the things I'm, you know, that are untold are like, how do you get those first clients? So the next one that you led me to is, how did you figure out pricing? Like, how do you figure out? I, I've said it on my show, the Friday, you know, the Friday episodes, how we figured out our pricing. Architecture is way different than what you than what you do. It's still service-based. So like, how did you wrap your arms around that? So I'm going to tell a funny story to answer your question. So <laughs> I have a co-founder in my, in my first main business. Um, he and I do a lot of investing together. Basically everything we've built, we've been kind of connected and that sort of thing. His name's Dave, uh, David Salinas. If anybody wants to look him up, he's just a brilliant guy, visionary guy. Um, one of my best friends. And it's hilarious. In the early days, I remember how I first was doing pricing was I was, you know, I was basically a sex worker for the internet, right? I was giving shit away mm -hmm. um, and not charging nearly enough. Um, so I would be doing these sites that should be like $20,000 and I would be doing them for like 500 bucks, a thousand bucks. Oh my gosh. So I remember him comes to me, he comes to me and there was this new hip hop brand that was launching. And I think it's funny actually, cause this weekend I'm going to the 50 cent concert. So like, I feel significantly old at this point that 50 cents, like in his fifties or forties. And due to inflation, he's a hundred cent now. So go ahead. 
I had to put that in there. <laughs> I love that so much. Um, amen. He's a dollar fifty. Um, so, so back then, I get this hip hop company comes to. Um, at that time, he was a friend of mine. We were going to the gym together. He was working at an SEO company. Um, wasn't an entrepreneur at the time. He was just really good at strategy, business development, a bunch of things. And he knew knew the power of sales, right? Which is, I think, the single greatest, most important thing that any business owner could learn how to do is sell. Yes, um, because it's it's the lifeblood. Revenue is the lifeblood of any business. Customers are the lifeblood of any business. I didn't know that back then. I was a purist. I used to poo poo on sales because I was that asshole. And he forever to this day tells me gives me shit for it. But why why I'm telling this story, right? So back to pricing. So I'm like, oh, I can do that for like a thousand bucks. He's like, no, that's going to be twenty thousand bucks. And I was like, wait, what? I've never done anything for $20,000. Mm -hmm. And he's like, let me take care of that. And then the next week we had a $20,000, you know, hip hop brand that um, was started from some of the former executives from Reebok, the shoe company. And we get this amazing client doing this killer work that got us a ton of attention and more clients in that space. And I'm a big hip hop head. So that was like incredibly inspiring, right? So to answer your question about pricing, I brought someone in who helped me see my value. I didn't see my value. I didn't, I didn't value myself. I, in fact, I devalued myself mm -hmm. um, and I got taken advantage of a lot in the early days. Um, and I didn't charge a fair wage for what I was delivering. So to answer your question, how I figured out pricing was I brought on an amazing co-founder who helped me see my value and he helped me to figure all that out. And that's where we went from there. Advice I would give to business owners today, wherever possible is try try to move to something called value-based pricing. Um, there's a uh, great podcast out there called Two Bobs, I think, mm -hmm. that the guys basically talk about value-based pricing versus hourly-based pricing. I'm a firm believer now, like I don't like to charge for hourly time because the work that I can do in one hour can create so much value that I'm not incentivizing me or you, the client, to work faster. Because if I work faster, I, I actually get paid less. Mm -hmm. So if I work slower, I get paid more. Clients want things fast and want things great, right? So there's the, the golden triangle of like good, fast, cheap, pick two if you're lucky. Yep. For me, I want to aim for like, I want to be really good and I want to be really fast wherever possible. And what that means is there's a high premium for that cost, right? So nowadays I try to move away from that type of hourly mentality because I think it sends the right, the wrong relationship signals. But that's a, that's a challenging thing, right? If you're selling a commodity um, or a physical good or a product, you have to sort of think about how people are buying the competitive alternatives to your service, whether you're an architect or whatever it is. So I think value-based pricing is my mentality now. But back then, I would say how I handled pricing was completely wrong. How I handled pricing back then was uh, I acted like a nonprofit, which was not smart. And uh, my business partner came in and saved me in that regard. Many architects do the same thing. So I, I'm, I'm totally empathizing with you here. And, and I think the connection is like, we, we get too heavy on the artist side of things. And then that's where I can, I can, I can, I feel that word you use, the purity, the purity word you use, right? Like, it's like a purist thing. So, you know, you have these signature architects these with these signature buildings. And then they say like, well, if I create these beautiful things, the clients are just going to come to me. And I got to imagine it's sort of the same thing with where you started out as well. The 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 to give us a little bit of credit on that, like as creatives, is well, clearly, like if I create a beautiful house and people love it, it's going to enhance our life. If you if once you create beautiful websites for people in digital marketing, it's going to enhance their business because they they get those first clients and everything. How do you how do you how have you maintained that as you as you grew 
Yeah. Like, like, well, and tell me about your discovery process with people that you work yeah. with to where you like can you understand here's the brand I need to really show outwardly and help them get the clients. Yeah. So for, for let's go back for one second. I'm going to sort of, this was heavily inspired by Rick Rubin. Um, mm. And I think it's three R's, right? I think it's results, reputation, resonance, right? Mm. Those are the three things that I think really matter to clients is one, if I work with you, what results will you create? Two, do you have the reputation and the work to back that up? Like, are there other people that they can call that would say, wow, Lance is amazing or Pete's amazing or whatever it is, right? And then that last part is resonance, right? Is the thing that you're making, whether it's the design for a building, whether it's, you know, a real estate thing, you mentioned your wife, so, you know, in, in real estate and mortgage broker, like whatever that, that resonance is going to be, how do we create that right connection? So in the case of, of me, it's like, I'm constantly being met with opportunities that I'm bringing to my team. I have a wonderful, amazing team that, that runs the company now because I'm not the sort of day-to-day -day operator as I previously was. And they have a great process that they go through to understand what's the client's vision, what's the client's values, what's their, you know, what's their core purpose, like where are they at right now? I think anything you do, whether you're a mortgage broker or an agency or a consultant, whatever the hell you are, you got to meet people where they're at. Right. And I think that again, it gets back to those three R's, right? Which is like really understand like what are the results that they need or want. And sometimes they don't necessarily know what the results are. Right. Second, what does that reputation look like? So building your reputation early on, I always, still to this day, I go above and beyond. We did an engagement the other day for a client. My team just wrapped up. It was like a $100,000 engagement. And we gave them $150,000 worth of value. No question. They're already seeing traction. And what happened, right? If you look at this operationally, it's like, well, we actually didn't get a lot of profit margin out of that deal, right? We probably broke even or even lost some money. But a couple of weeks ago, they called us back up and they want a bunch more stuff now, right? We probably wouldn't have had that opportunity if we didn't go above and beyond. So I think that the way you build a reputation is by showing up, doing the things you say you're going to do, which I think it sounds mm -hmm. really obvious. Yeah. But how many times do you hire somebody, whether it's a contractor or whatever it is, and they oversell you and they under deliver? I like to, I like to undersell and over deliver. So for me, like if I'm promising you the world, I'm going to give you the fucking universe. Mm -hmm. That's like how I like to operate. And I think that's why I've been able to build the reputation that I've built because I do what I say I'm going to do. So those are the sort of three R's that I would say as to how you assign getting to a value-based pricing model. And again, there's a lot more nuance to it, mm -hmm. but really what you have to look at is like, okay, show me the world before working with Lance, show me the world after working with Lance. And then what does that transformation look like? And then how does that transformation translate into dollars? So I'll give you a perfect example. You mentioned real estate. I actually own a co-working facility and a tech campus that my partner and I, my partners and I built. One of the things that's dramatically different about our business, which is going so much more successful than some of the competitors in the co-working spaces and that sort of thing, is that we've created a end-to-end -end community experience that's really catered to our specific locale and the needs and wants of people. We do that by listening to people, by asking lots of questions, and then co-creating an experience. So if I had to sell that concept to somebody else, in this case, I own it, but if I had to sell that to somebody else, what I would say is the difference in my cost structure is going to directly translate to their potential results, right? So if everybody else is sort of vanilla, I'm going to give you sort of fusion, chocolate, strawberry kind of a flavor. So it's going to stand out. It's going to create that resonance. My reputation is going to back up the fact that that's going to happen. And then coming back to results. So I, you can never guarantee results in a service-based situation, but what you can guarantee is that the artifacts and the outputs that you're going to create 
are going to be in alignment with the scope. So that's typically how I would say to look at that. And that can go with anything, whether you're doing blueprints for as an architect or whether you're, you know, building digital experiences for clients like I do. Absolutely spot on. I mean, you're, it sounds like we really are a one-to-one in the way we operate. We do the exact same thing. That was one of our very early lessons was under promise over deliver every time. And it does like, it's funny you mentioned it, like the, it seems obvious, but it's like, I don't know, for some reason, the obvious stuff is just overlooked right away when you're in startup mode. And I think that I I actually think that's why most startups end up failing. It's because they over, they, they just, they just are somehow blinders on or like tunnel vision and they can't see that wider perspective of like, it's just really basic stuff, returning phone calls, under-promising, over-delivering, um, those those sorts of things. And then showing up and actually doing the work. Like, like it's very obvious, but there you are. So I'm not going to get religious, but uh, I, I feel like I this sounds like a bumper sticker that would say like, what would Jesus do or something like that, sure. right? And like, I'm not a super religious guy, but it just I keep seeing those bumper stickers when you said that. It's like, treat people how you want to be treated. Treat sure. your clients how you'd want to be treated. When a client calls you, when you call when your contractors, do you want them to pick up or call you right back? Or do you want them to wait seven days? Like, so these are like, for, for me, they're common sense. But I think the problem is, is that the industry, at least in my industry, agencies kind of have a bad rap, right? Because you've got the sort of creme de la creme agencies, which mm. typically are owned by these big holdings companies. And at that point, they've kind of lost their soul a little bit. And, you know, to be fair, it's, it's, no, it's no knock at them. I have lots of friends who work at or run these types of firms. But I think the governance on what drives them and the results that drive them limit their ability to do the things that they want to do. So I love working with small business owners. I love working with entrepreneurs. It's one of the reasons I create content like I'm creating with you right now is mm-hmm. I know I can't work with all these people because of cost structures. You know, I've I've sort of priced myself out of that market in some cases. But so now I want to just give away all this free advice because it's worked for me. It's helped me build multiple businesses. And I want people to take that and run with it. Like I'm really passionate about that. But on that note, I just, I think that, Measurement structures are really important. So if we can talk about that for a second, I think yeah. that, that would be really valuable for the audience. Yeah, yeah, go go on. I mean, if you were yeah. to keep going on with that, yeah, I don't even know what to ask you. So you just keep going. <laughs> well, ask, I mean, ask me whatever whatever you're curious about. I mean, ask me about- Oh, okay. I'm sorry, sorry. I thought you meant something about the measurement part of it. Oh, no, I, I, but I want to I want to cover that really quick. So, so yeah. for me, I think that if you want to understand the results of an organization- and you want to, you have to understand the reward structures. Mm-hmm. And I think what most people get wrong is they think that all people care about is money. And one of my favorite books was a book that changed my life. The book is called Drive, and it's by Daniel Pink. And what he basically says is, if you look for people that want the extrinsic reward system only, right, the carrot and the stick, you're gonna you're gonna attract the wrong people. But instead, what he says is, look for intrinsic motivations because you can't motivate people. People have to motivate themselves in, in many cases. Um, and the science backs this up. But what he says is, people are looking for purpose autonomy and mastery in the work that they do. And when you can unlock those three things, which is, I think, giving someone a sense of autonomy, a sense of agency, and a sense of progress to really hone their craft or crafts, I think there's a magic thing. So what we did early on was created a simple um, measurement structure in the organization. And since implementing this, I think we've seen transformational growth with our people. So those four things are, so we have what we call four green lights. The first green light is our team satisfaction. So overall team happiness, right? We measure that with, you know, in our one-on-ones, you measure that in our surveys, both anonymous and non-anonymous. And that's really sort of team satisfaction. The second thing is client satisfaction. We measure that by having a third party inside our team who's not connected to the client 
reach out, engage with our client and learn how things are going. We hear raw and open feedback that you wouldn't get if, if me and you were working together and I called you and asked you, right? Mm-hmm. People tend to sort of, you know, not want to hurt feelings, or whatever. So we get that raw feedback. That's client satisfaction. The third thing is the impact of the work, right? We have a really great analytics team. We're always measuring like the before and after. We call that the delta, right? When you start working with us, what's that incremental gain we can create or transformational gain? So the impact of the work is the third green light. The fourth green light is the profit. So just to kind of roll that back, why does that matter? If you have a happy team, they're most likely going to be able to create happy clients. If you have happy clients working with a happy team, you're probably going to be able to create great work with great impact. And then I think profit comes last. And I think profit comes last because profit's not a goal. Profit's a result. And profit is, a, is proof that what you're doing is working. And I think when you take care of your teams, you take care of your clients, that takes care of their business. And then in that case, it takes care of the profit. So my thought is when all those things are going well, or what we call four green lights, we see some really amazing things. But what's amazing about that framework is it's simple. We can really start to really simple measure what is or isn't working in a traffic light system. And I think what that helps us with is things like, you know, what they call alert um, alert fatigue, where if you keep seeing the same thing, you're just going to tune it out. So what's nice about these traffic lights for us is when we're doing our measurement meetings with our executive team, or um, we, we do a sort of revised version of EOS, which is like the entrepreneurial operating system, which we can talk about separate if you want. But the high levels, when we're going through and looking at our measurements, we can see what traffic lights are going from green to yellow or yellow to red or staying red. And that lets us sort of double click and poke a little bit deeper as to what might be wrong and have some really open dialogue. So what I would say to the business owners watching this is no matter what kind of business you're in, Understand what you're measuring and understand what drives success in your business. Because when you know, and your teams know, and your clients know, everyone can work more closely to make those things happen. I think a lot of times I was talking to a friend recently, he's at a very large tech company that I won't say which one, but you've Mm -hmm. heard of it. And he was saying he hasn't gotten clarity on goals for the year yet. It's August, right? So he's got a performance review coming up in a couple months. He has no idea how he's going to be scored. And I was like, holy shit, this is a global giant tech company and they don't have any clarity on goals. How can we expect him to show up and perform? And more importantly, if he's performing really well, how do we make sure that he's being aware of that so that he wants to stick around and keep performing versus if he's doing really poorly, how do we make sure he's aware of that before he just gets put on a PIP or performance improvement plan and gets punted out the door? So yeah, I can go on and on about that for hours, but I think as a creative guy, it took me far too long in my life, probably like 15 years before I realized the value of some of those simple systems that I shared with you today. Beautiful. That that was fantastic. And and I thank you for the book suggestion. I downloaded it while you were on your rant there. That was that was fantastic. So I'm I'm going I'm going to dive into Drive. I really appreciate that. Let me know uh, how you like it. Yeah, I will. Uh last well, w- one question I have to ask you because you're a creative and it's mentioned in your bio and when your PR manager reached out to me was AI. It's, we're, we, you know, this is like the year of AI. And so as a fellow creative, like, I'm curious about your take on it. Are you worried about it? Or you think it's coming for your job? You know, wh- where do you see it heading specifically in the field that you operate in? Yeah, well, first and foremost, AI, and AI is not coming for your job, but someone using AI is. Hmm hands down. So what I would say is I'm using AI in almost every aspect of my life from meal planning and grocery shopping to the work I do with briefing my teams and my clients from how I research and and do different things. And again, I could spend hours with you just going through the different tools we use to do that. But what I would say at the most macro level is if you're not using AI and at the most simple level, it's like, 
chat GPT, right? yes. at the most basic, simple level. If you're not using tools like that in your workflow, and I say like that because there's a, it's a whole deep dive, but like yep. at a big picture, like you need to be using these tools because fundamentally the way that we create businesses now and in the future has forever changed. There will never be a day again where like myself back in the bookstore, when I was a kid, I'll be writing every line of code myself. Nowadays, we're writing code with AIs, right? Where they're auto-completing our code. Nowadays, AIs are checking our work or analyzing our data and our spreadsheets, right? AIs are making us faster. Shit, when you take a picture, right? We've had this for years and it's blurry and AI fixes it because mm -hmm. it detects it. These are technologies that are so seamlessly embedded in our world. We don't even realize it. There's AI in every single car, even the most basic car that's on the market today, right? Now, the challenge is, is that what you're talking about is the advent this year, the past 14 months of these large language models, right? Yeah. Tools like ChatGPT, tools like Google's Bard. And what these tools have essentially done is democratized access to these really powerful things. And, and again, at the most simple level, a large language model is basically just a giant smart autocomplete engine, right? But what makes these tools special is their ability to not just spit out knowledge or in some cases hallucinate knowledge, but what makes these <laughs> tools really special is their ability to reason with us. And I can go into a million examples if they're helpful with you. You know, I know I know you have a limited time in terms of uh, the, the this show today, but I'm happy to dive deep. I mean, I, I don't have a hard stop right now. Yeah, no, no, that was great. I think I'm glad you you know we I have adopted it in I use it almost every day. For example, this you're the intro to this podcast was written by written by AI hundred percent, but it was it a sounded, beautiful. It sounded like it was. Yeah. I, yeah, exactly. Like we, we got to talk about your prompts, man. We got to talk about your prompts. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So, so like, uh, and then like some of the questions, um, a lot of the questions were generated in that way, but then I, then I, I didn't read them verbatim. You know, I just took parts from it that I, that I liked in order to do that. Um, it's here, it's here to stay. I'm with you. And then like, just like the innate part of it that is just built in now, like with Photoshop, uh, I'm a big Photoshop guy cause I'm an architect. So like the ability to correct images and stuff like that, I, I just don't think you're getting away from it. Have um, you used Midjourney at all? Yeah, yeah, we have used Midjourney. Uh, we're novices. Uh, we have we we haven't used it in the sense of like trying to generate any kind of images for for clients yet in that sort of way because, frankly, like the still from when I started like in 2000 when when I graduated college in 2008, the rendering engines were 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 getting a lot better. Like we we're getting access to the same software that was used to render the matrix and stuff like that when that came out sort of that and but now now it's much more seamless and so we still have the ability to do what we want to do but we are definitely using for touch-ups on certain things so it's creeping in and and there's kind of no way around it i'm actually thankful for it um so i I'm, agree I'd be, I'd be super happy to connect with you kind of offline about this but i'll give you an example right if so you're an architect right so yeah. if you were in a meeting with a client what I would do again, of course, with consent, right, is what here's what I would suggest you do. I would suggest you going through your discovery process with your client, ask them a bunch of questions. I would suggest recording that meeting, taking the transcription from that meeting, and then using that to fire off some creative stimuli, auto generate a mood board, some concept art in terms of ideas, then you and your team kind of curate down. Mm -hmm. And then you feed that information to some of these AIs. And then you start getting a bunch of different creations. Now, a good example is one of my friends who I actually just got off the phone with an hour ago. Um, he's a game designer. He's working on some really big games, um, like games that you would know about if I told you about them. Yep. And they're using it, a, these AIs to create characters, levels, concept ideas. So there's so many different things. And I can show you again, I can show you offline because it would take me a couple minutes to do it. But 
I can show you just like, if you gave me your five favorite pieces of architecture or styles of architecture, I could feed that information to an AI and then show you how something like Midjourney or Stable Diffusion or some of the other tools that are out there can start to generate these amazing things. And then from there, your team can bring that into like even 3D programs now. Mm -hmm. Like for example, Blender, which is not what you probably use as an architect, but Blender, you can automate now. So you can start creating these different things. Um, the other day I played with a model that took 2D images and made 3D um, meshes from them. So really cool stuff in terms of what's possible. And that's today, right? Yeah. Like, so I would say six months, 12 months, you know, two years from today, what's possible is going to be completely transformational. So why does that matter to you, right? Like in my opinion, what I would say matters most is that in the future, our ability to communicate and bring realities in people's heads to life, that's going to be the magic competitive advantage, right? So I believe creativity is the competitive advantage Using these tools is the mm. sort of Batman tool belt to get us there. But that's where like, I could I could nerd out with you for hours and this stuff because, um, I mean, I'll show you some of the stuff we're getting on MidJourney and it's like, it's absurd. Now, again, just want to caveat, super important that you look at the laws. A lot of copyright stuff's going to be popping up because mm -hmm. these things are training on sometimes data that they didn't you know, acquire the right way. So in some cases, there's going to be a big backlash on those kinds of things. Um, I think Adobe's doing some really cool stuff with their Sensei technology, their their generative stuff. Shutterstock's trying to do some interesting things with training on their databases. So I think where the data comes from and what it spits out, I think we're going to get ourselves into some pretty big legal and privacy and ethical concerns over the next few years. But like when it comes to that kind of stuff with AI, like, dude, I could do a whole show with you on AI and I would love to, because it's like, it's, it's in, it's crept into every single yeah. aspect of my life beyond belief. Yeah. Yeah. I, I would love to follow up with you on that and maybe Q4 this year. We could do, yeah, a, do, we could do a full blown hour. That'd be awesome. Yeah. That sounds uh, great. We'll make it happen. Yeah. Two, two questions, two last questions here, Pete. I ask everybody this, knowing what you know now, and if you can go back in time when you first started your business, what is one piece of advice you give your former self? Your network is your net worth. I love that. I love that. Pete, you have been a phenomenal guest. I love guests like you where I can just ask a few questions, wind you up, set you off like a top. You're great. Um, we'll definitely have you back on for an AI episode. Uh, only Let's that do would it. Be, that would be great. Where, If people want to get a hold of you, if I want to reach reach out, maybe possibly hire your firm or, or interview you guys, where can they find and follow you? Yeah, so I try to put out as much content as I can have time for on you know all things Pete Senna. So on, on Medium, where I write long-form stuff, it's Pete Senna. My website's PeteSenna.com. I've got a free newsletter that I publish bi-weekly um, in there that just, you know, all free stuff. Um, in terms of my firm, so DigitalSurgeons.com um, is where you can see some of the brand transformation work. But what I would say is if anybody has questions, like listen to the show, like, you know, shoot me a tweet or an X, whatever we're calling it now. Thanks, Elon. <laughs> um, shoot me a tweet, LinkedIn. Um, I'm pretty much Pete Senna on all the platforms. Um, I'm not the nuclear energy guy because there's another Peter okay. Senna okay. who's like the CEO of an energy company, but um, <laughs> that's not me. Um, but yeah, no, hit me up and that that's the best ways to to check me out. Awesome. Okay. Thanks for your time today, Pete. We really appreciate you. Likewise.